And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, my name's Jordan, and, uh, and I hate thieves. Anyone? <laughs> Particularly uh, scammers. And whether, you know, whether people are stealing catalytic converters in East Portland um, or giving you a call on your cell phone to try to steal the hard-earned retirement savings from elderly people who don't know how to work technology, I really have a hard time with scammers. And I'm not alone. This is a YouTuber named Mark Rober, former NASA engineer. Now he makes videos on YouTube. Uh, but he has put together something called a glitter bomb, which is a harmless prank to pull on porch pirates. And then he thought, what if I could send one of these to the people who keep blowing up my cell phone with spam calls? And as he tried to figure out how to make that happen, he entered a deep dive into this criminal underworld in a $20 billion a year industry uh, to figure out how he can just subvert and prank it. And here's, here's the deal. There's, most of these call centers are in India, and don't worry, the Indians hate them too. Uh, but they, they call <coughs> half a million calls, so to speak, a day, trying to find particularly the elderly who don't understand technology very much. And these people pretend to be people of authority. They pretend to be your bank or the IRS or Amazon or, you know, Walmart or something that you've heard of and you respect. And then through an intricate series of events, they convince these good people that they've made a mistake, that they've, they've screwed up something really, really bad. And so in order to make it right, in order to be a, a good person, you have to send thousands of dollars cash uh, to someone elsewhere in the United States. And so these elderly Americans think that they are doing the right thing. And they think that they are making amends for a mistake that they made, when in actuality they're being cheated out of their life savings. And so, uh, again, you can watch the YouTube video. They trace it all back, and actually, um, because of one of these videos, they're able to shut down one of these call centers in India, and hip, hip, hooray. It's awesome. So public safety announcement. If you are an elderly American and you get a phone call, no matter who it is or how it goes, if the response is that you're supposed to withdraw a large amount of cash and keep it secret and then mail it to someone, you are being scammed. Don't listen to them. And please call me or someone else in the church and we'll, we'll help figure it out. But it's, it's a lie. And as despicable as these lies are, there's others that I have even a harder time with. And those are the lies that take people not away from their hard-earned cash, but away from their hard-earned Christ, take them away from Jesus. Because as the Jesus follower, I truly do believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that anyone who believes in Jesus won't die, but will experience eternal life. Which means that if you walk away from Jesus you have no hope. You have no security. You have no salvation. The stakes are just so much higher than losing your retirement savings. And, and for Paul, the author of the letter to the Colossians that we're going to be in this morning, uh, he felt the same way. In fact, one of his injunctions to uh, a number of different um, leaders in the churches is to guard against false teaching. Because for Paul, Jesus really is everything. Jesus had crashed into Paul's life and, and changed it, and he believed that he had good news, that in Jesus Christ, the mystery of God for the ages had finally been revealed, that God was in the business of saving and blessing the entire world 
through Jesus. That in Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. That in Jesus, the full revelation of the nature and being of God has been disclosed to humanity. And so if you lose Christ, you've lost it all. And so Paul is out to build up Christians, to tell people about Jesus, and then help them to walk in Jesus for the rest of their life. And so in our letter this morning, Paul is writing again to a church that he's never met, that he didn't plant, but he wants them to know Christ and to be built up in him. So this is what he writes. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Some of your Bibles will say, so walk in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Like a tree, be rooted in Christ, anchored deep, drawing your nourishment and support from Jesus. Be built up in him, brick by brick, slowly being assembled into this fantastic tower, this palatial structure. Be strengthened in the faith as you are taught. Just make it more firm. And of course, the natural byproduct of salvation in Jesus is gratitude, thankfulness. We, as Christians, should be the most grateful people on planet Earth. And I want to take a little aside um, just to acknowledge what do we mean when we say Christ Jesus is Lord. This is a uh, professor named Christopher Seitz I'm going to be quoting, and he is a very smart guy who talks at a upper end college level. So this, if this makes your eyes glaze over, uh, don't mind me, I'll try to summarize it at the end, but this is what he writes. He says, to call Christ the Lord is to confess his ontological identity, that ontological word talking about being who he is, is to confess his ontological identity with the God of Israel, Yahweh. It is to uphold the core conviction of Israel's creedal life, that the Lord our God is Lord him alone, as Jesus himself attested before the questioning scribes, while at the same time, to confess this Lord Christ as enclosed within the eternal life of Yahweh, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Paul is introducing the Colossians to the basic grammar of Christian faith. Okay, your eyes can unglaze if that was a little bit much for you. Hopefully for some of you that was helpful. Uh, what Paul is essentially, what Christopher is saying is that when we say Jesus is Lord, we're taking our first step towards recognizing God as Trinity. We say that there is one God. This is what the Jews have always believed. This is what Paul has always believed. There is one God. We worship him alone. And yet at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we've come to understand this one God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other eternally. To say Jesus is Lord is to claim something about who Jesus is and what he reveals to us about God. All right? It's not just to say that Jesus is our boss. And the reason I just want to mention it is because I grew up in the Christian church. I was a Sunday school superstar, to use <laughs> that phrase. And yet, even as a high schooler, I'm sitting listening to the pastor speak about how Jesus is God, and I'm just wondering, like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't see it. Where is that in the scripture? Because the testimony of the early church is that this is really clear, and we had huge church councils where this was just affirmed over and over again but I'm reading my New Testament and I'm, I'm struggling to put the pieces together. And so I just want to help you guys with this because it matters. 
So just as you were received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. You might see these two verses kind of summarize the entire letter to the Colossians. You've received Christ, now walk in him. So we learn that we should live totally live lives totally invested in and obsessed with Jesus. This is who we should be. And that thankfulness is a natural byproduct of faith in Jesus. Now Paul is going to warn them about, about the counterfeits and the scams that are out there. See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. There's ideologies out there. There's ways of thinking about the world, about reality, about what it means to be human, about the future hope that we have, if there's any, about what progress means, and about how we make good decisions that are based on no more than just traditions of people and are under the influence of malevolent spiritual forces in the world. And Paul's saying, if it doesn't factor in Jesus, you're going to be off. That you can, you can be t- taken captive by these things, but they're hollow and they're deceptive. Don't walk away from Jesus. Because in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He can't be any more clear than this. When we look at Christ, we look at the full disclosure of God who is taking on human flesh. You want to know what the God that created heaven and earth is like? Look at Jesus and see him. And he says, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You're complete now. You don't need anything else. You're good. Because God, who's shown himself through Jesus Christ, has now made us complete in him. And Jesus is the head over every power and authority. Like, he is at the top of this food train. And Paul's essentially saying, y'all don't need any middle management. You have access to the very top. It's like you, you guys have the bat phone, you know, from the mayor's office to get straight to Batman, only you get to access Jesus, the full disclosure of God himself. Don't settle for anything less. Because in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Cool. Last time we talked about circumcision, we had all the kids with us. So this is a little bit easier uh, this time. But if you're not aware, circumcision is just a rite. It's a ritual uh, that the Jews past and present continue to por- perform, where they take the foreskin off a male child to mark him as a member of God's people. But the problem throughout Scripture, and even to this day, is that external change does not affect the inside. And so these people, while externally, yeah, they look like God's people, but they don't act like God's people. Their hearts haven't been changed. And so even in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we're told to circumcise your hearts. you got to change yourself in there. And the problem is we can't. And so what Paul is talking, Paul talking to a bunch of Gentiles who have not undergone ritual circumcision, he says, Jesus, yeah, he just took the whole thing. He took your your flesh nature. He took not your body, but everything about us that is broken, rebellious, sinful, or, or just off. And he's taken all of that away. 
with, with a, a cutting that just went far deeper than anything on the surface. Jesus circumcised everything wrong about us when, we, when he did it for us. And he, uh, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. There was a ritual we went under, it was called baptism, where symbolically we go into the water, symbolizing that we, we died with Jesus. His death was ours. And so we, this aspect of our nature dies. And when we come out of the water, it symbolizes that just as 2,000 years ago, God physically raised Jesus from the dead. So we too, spiritually, are made alive in Christ. And one day, one day we will physically rise to be with him forever. This is what God has done for us. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I was kind of depressed by this good news yesterday because I realized it's so good, I don't know how to explain it well. So I'm going to tell you a story that I think highlights a number of the themes that Paul's talking about. It's said that Tsar Nicholas II of Russia would regularly doff his emperor's garments and take on the disguise of a common soldier so he could walk among the troops and assess the morale. And one night as the emperor is walking through the camp, he enters into an officer's tent to find him asleep at his post. And as he's about to rebuke the officer for this dereliction of duty, he recognizes the young man and realizes, oh, this is the son of my dear friend. And he's fallen asleep at his desk, and there's this ledger and a pistol on the table. And as he begins to look at the papers, he quickly realizes what had happened. This young man had fallen into some severe gambling debts. And then in an attempt to get out of them, he had borrowed on those debts and gambled that away. And then realizing that he's really sunk in a hole, he'd begun to embezzle from the military funds in order to pay his debts. And finally, this young man had sat down and actually written out a ledger of everything that he owed, and it was startling and shocking and overwhelming, and he realized that he had absolutely no hope. And at the bottom of this ledger, he wrote in large script, who can pay such a great debt? And so he decided the only way out of this predicament that he'd found himself in was to kill himself, hence the pistol. But overcome with grief and sorrow, he'd fallen asleep before he actually had. And the czar looks at this young man, he knows everything that he's done, and he has compassion on him. And so he picks up the pen, and underneath the question in large letters, he writes, Nicholas, his name. And a few hours later, when the officer comes to, he sees the pistol, he sees the ledger, he remembers what he was about to do. And as he reaches for the gun, he sees the question, who can pay such a great debt? And then he sees the name underneath of the emperor. And he realizes that he is known, his shame has been uncovered, and yet someone has had compassion on him. 
few hours later, out of the personal pocket of the emperor of all Russia, the debt was paid. And the man walked free. This is what Christ has done for us. For each one of us. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus took on all the pain and vindictiveness and the punishment that these evil authorities over the human race had to bring upon him. And he let them kill him. And then God raised him from the dead. Essentially saying to all of them, is that your best shot? And just as a young man whose creditors came calling only to find out that they no longer had any leverage over him because all the debts were paid, so we, as those in Jesus, are no longer under the authority of these false spirits. Christ has set us free. He triumphed over them all in the cross. We don't have to listen to them anymore. Therefore, Paul says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. You, you were baptized in Christ. You don't need anything else. All of these rules and regulations and observances that these super holy looking people say you need to keep in order to be right with God, it's just a sham. It all, it all pointed to Christ, but if you have Christ, then you have the reality. You just don't need it anymore. So, I mean, one thing we learn is when we familiarize ourselves with Jesus, we're going to be able to guard against deception. We won't be taken in. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and in the worship of, of angels, whatever exactly that means, disqualify you tell you that you're not enough, tell you that it doesn't count, tell you that, that you're not close to God because you're not doing X and Y and Z. Such a person also goes into great detail about, oh, what they've seen, these spiritual visions of theirs, but they're puffed up with an idle notion by their unspiritual mind. Like, you might think that you have, you know, a secret mystery of how to get in on God's good side, but in reality, you've just lost connection with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. There's no secret rite. There's no secret ritual. There's no induction that if you guys stay part of this church for the next, like, 10 years, then in a Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code-esque secret ritual, you know, we're going to really get you guys spiritual one day. Like, it just doesn't work like that. Christ has done it all. You don't need that stuff. And, and to think that you need Jesus plus whatever it is, it, it's just to say Jesus isn't enough. And that's not true. Jesus is head over all. He is the head of the body. And, and in Ephesians, Paul used this metaphor to say, yeah, Jesus is the head. Each one of us are, are cells or organs or, or members of Christ's body. And so we build one another up. Now in Colossians, he says, no, Jesus is the head. So we belong to him. We're united with him. And God makes all of us grow. This is a work of God. Jesus plus nothing. God doesn't need you to be a good person. God doesn't need you to live a good life or, or to give or to um, not eat 
this or not drink that or not smoke or chew or go with folks who do, as I used to say. Like, God doesn't need any of that. Jesus saves you. He dealt with your sin. Not because of what we've done, but just because he's good. Because he's good. And since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Like these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have the appearance of wisdom. I mean, don't get me wrong, they look really good with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't actually help, help this. They don't get into the heart. Any external rituals that you might perform fail to accomplish the heart transformation that's needed. Only Jesus can save us on the inside no matter how good it might look. See, Paul, he just wants us to get it. Jesus has saved us. Walk in him. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one add a list of regulations that you also need to follow some sort of code of conduct to earn God's favor. No, God loves you, period. And if you've been baptized in Christ, like the one right that Jesus asks, a way of accepting uh, and trusting in him, you're done. That's it. Nothing else needed. I, I like to think of it like a marriage as an illustration. Uh, Jennifer, if I was to tell you that Kara married me because, oh, I'm really good at doing her dishes, you know, and, and I, put, I put gas in her gas tank, and um, I, I'll take her to her doctor's appointments. And she married me because I, I occasionally cook her a meal or I'll vacuum her floor, it sounds really weird, right? Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> like, what? No, no, no. Uh, Kara is my wife because I asked her, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And once married, she could be into a coma. She'd still be my wife. It, it, does, it doesn't matter what she does. It doesn't matter what, what I do. Like, we're married. And out of this relationship in which we say we're good with one another comes yeah, there's a multitude of responses, like loving my wife. But I don't, I don't earn my place in her life by the things that I do. That's a gift. And so with God, he saves us. And then out of the overflow of our gratitude comes the Christian life. Paul's not saying that fasting or observing festivals is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that we celebrate Christmas or Easter or anything else. They're not bad. They're just not, not needed. <laughs> we don't come closer to God. He doesn't love us any more because we do them. He doesn't love us any less because we don't. So we should never say as Christians, well, I'm, you know, I get to be with God forever in heaven because I'm a good person. We should never say I get to be in heaven with, with God because I, well, I give my money or I don't do bad things or I, I earn it. We don't. We don't even try. We're good with God because God has made us good with God through Jesus on the cross. Case closed. So some things we learn. God has manifested himself to us fully and perfectly in Christ. When we think about Jesus dying on a cross for the sins of those who hate him, 
we see the best picture of the nature and reality of God. He's generous, he's good, he loves us. And he's given everything in order that we might be saved. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God of both love and justice, who doesn't overlook sin, but has dealt with it on the cross of Christ. See, in Christ, God has done absolutely everything needed in order to save us. Really, the only thing left for us to do is to accept it. I think of the, the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you guys have seen that, the, the search for the Holy Grail. And they're in the temple and they found the grail and they cross the seal on their way out. And all of a sudden, the massive earthquake happens. And the temple begins to crumble around them and a, and a crevice opens in the floor and rocks are falling from the ceiling. And there's this woman, the, one of the villains of the story, who has betrayed Indiana and has been working with the enemy the entire time, who falls into the crack and is going to die. And Indiana goes after her, reaches out his hand and says, take my hand. And he offers her life. He offers her salvation. He offers her a hope for the future. But just a little bit further down in the crack is the Holy Grail, like light in this movie, representing life on your own terms. Uh, you know, to do what you want, when you want, how you want. And rather than taking the sure salvation he offers, she's like, oh, I, can, I can get this just a little bit more. And of course, she falls to her death. God has done everything to save the human race. We don't need to do anything other than just accept his love, accept his rescue. We learn aesthetic practices do not accomplish the heart transformation needed. Only Jesus saves. I had a friend down in Roseburg who was in the vicious cycle of addiction. This may sound familiar to you guys because he'd, he'd be binging on the drugs and then he'd get clean and say, I'm never, ever, ever going to do this again. And all of a sudden, for a little while, he's living the most upstanding religious life ever. And he's this zealot who is cruel and, and persecutes uh, you know, everyone else, like, he's talking to me about, you shouldn't drink caffeine, and you shouldn't drink sugar, and there should be no substance into your body that will affect you negatively, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. I mean, he was just all into that, and then, you know, a month would go by, and then he'd be back into the drugs. Because, because external actions don't affect heart change. I can sew my lips shut to keep me from speaking but it won't change the fact that I want to say bad things to people. We can, we can lock up a thief, but we haven't actually changed the fact that he wants to take from us. We can, you know, as many uh, young men have found, you can remove all access to looking at, you know, pornography or other things. It doesn't mean that you don't want it. And all of these ascetical practices, again, they don't, they don't save us. They can't save us. Jesus he saves us. He is head over every spiritual and physical power. We have access straight to the top. We don't need anything else. But we as believers do need to guard against false teaching and practices that displace Jesus as head of the church. Got to be on our guard. Why? Because there's a lot of scammers out there that want to convince us that they are an authority in our lives. That we need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be accepted, in order to be approved, in order to be saved. And it's just all over. I don't, I don't like talking about politics because I don't really like talking about things I don't know very well. But one of the things is I have a hard time when I see Jesus followers 
seeming to identify themselves first and foremost as a Democrat, as a Republican, as a man or a woman, as a member of a certain social class or certain, um, a certain racial identity. Like it, it doesn't matter. We have all of these identity politics that are out there. And my thing for Jesus followers is, is well, all of those may have good things to them. Your, our first and foremost identity as Jesus followers is to be Christians. It's to say Jesus defines who we are and what it means to be human. And anytime we lose sight of that, we, hit, we are walking away from Jesus and falling into a trap. So let Jesus be our first priority. And then, yeah, let's bring in all this good stuff. That's fine. We need to guard against it. So here's some things we can act out. One, get to know Jesus and bring your questions. Let us get to know Jesus and bring your questions. I had a neighbor. Her name was Leah. She was a woman in her 60s. And when she grew up, she was a Christian until she wasn't anymore. Because she was in the San Francisco Bay Area as a teenager. And sure enough, she had some questions about life and about spirituality, about Jesus, and about things that were going on in the world. And she walked into her pastor's office to ask him questions and was essentially told, quit thinking about that, and it'll be okay. Well, she didn't, and she left the church. And it grieves me. Not because she was asking questions, but because no one was willing to walk her through these questions. Because there's, there's ideologies out there, there's philosophies out there, they're hollow, they're based on human teachings and spiritual forces that will give you answers, but I'm convinced that the way of Jesus has better answers for human life, for a future hope, for meaning, for substance, for identity, th than anything else out there. And so I would like to be the kind of person that is safe to bring questions to, to say, I'm, I'm really struggling with this, or I'm wondering about this. And maybe I have the answer, and maybe I can point you to some people who are far smarter and far better at this than I am. Um, because questions matter. So get to know Jesus, but don't be afraid to ask questions. And also let us live totally invested in and obsessed with Jesus. Let's just be crazy about him. So I have a little aid here. Some of you guys know chocolate is my favorite thing to uh, use as a, an example. So if you're here, take some pieces. But here's what I want you to do. Chocolate's good. Jesus is better. So however many pieces you take, when you go home this week, sit down and read this passage that we just read this morning. Read about Jesus or read chapter 1, 13 through 20 about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. And think about it and eat a piece of chocolate, and go, chocolate is good, Jesus is better. And if you're a parent, you can take some of this chocolate, because, you know, there's a lot of people absent this morning, so I got extra. And you can do this with your kids, because I learned chocolate is an amazing, powerful influence in my children's life. <laughs> and when my three-and-a-half-year-old's like, I want to learn about Jesus, too, really what he means is, like, I want chocolate, but it's like, that's a fair trade. I'll teach you. So, Jennifer, I'm going to hand this to you, and if you want to just pass this around. You can't, yeah, you can take some, but not all of it. Sorry, everyone's scattered around. Guys, we should, I want us to familiarize ourselves with Jesus and be able to guard against deception. You know, they say that the bank tellers, they learn to spot counterfeits not by studying the fakes, but by simply just handling so much cash. 
that they know what a real dollar feels like. And, and so with, with Paul, when he looks at the Colossian church, we aren't really given very many details about what they're struggling with. There, there's hints, but there's a lot of people who spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what was going on in the Lycus Valley and Asia Minor at the time of Paul, and they haven't come to conclusions, uh, conclusive uh, conclusions. We just don't know. But what Paul does do is over and over again, he keeps bringing the discussion back to Jesus and who he is. And my hope is that each one of us would know Jesus so well that when we encounter arguments or ideas um, out there in the world that we just say, you know, I, I don't even know if you're right, but something about that's off. Like this little old Catholic lady in her 70s who's illiterate and just can't even read the Bible for herself, but she knows God. And someone came into their church leading a Bible study talking about how God is this mean, vindictive person who just is out there for sinners and and just wants to basically like crush them under their thumb. And she just speaks up. She's like, well, I I don't know the Bible and I can't read, but but you're not talking about Jesus because I know Jesus and he's not like that. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Be rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Give thanks to God at all times and all circumstances, because if we really got just what God has done for us in Christ, we just couldn't stop but to say thank you. So let's not be scammed out of our hard-earned Christ. Hard-earned not because we did anything to deserve it, but because Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice in order to bring himself to us that we might be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious and good God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the good things of life and chocolate. And Father, I just pray for your people that as, as we experience your blessings in tangible ways in our, our days and weeks, that we would say, like, these are just shadows and foretastes of the salvation that you're bringing, that Jesus is better than anything else we have experienced. And that we are good with you. Father, truly help us to believe it. And when we're struggling and when we're mean and bitter, uh, and bitter towards others, when we're steeped in sin and making really bad and destructive choices, help us to pause and to remember that we're still good with you. Because Christ has paid our debts. And he's nailed our sin, past, present, and future, to the cross because we are accepted by you, we know we don't have to live like that anymore. And we can walk in freedom. And Father, when we are living morally upstanding lives, and when people are singing our praises, and when we're tempted to think really good things about ourselves because we're just not like other people, would you just remind us that we are not good with you because of these things that we've done. We're good with you because of Jesus. Because all of our best efforts in our own power just don't make the cut. And we need the salvation of Jesus to save us too. And so, Father, as we go out this week and as we encounter one another and all of the messy, amazing, broken, and beautiful humanity that is out there, let us remember that, that all of us uh, come to you by Christ alone. And if we are accepted in your eyes and we can accept other people wherever they are and love them too, because uh, you've loved us all and you gave your son to save us. Help us to remember that, to meditate on that, and to come 
so close to Jesus that we're just not even tempted to go anywhere else because there's nothing better than your son. In his name we pray.